Okay, it's Victoria Riddell, and my pronouns are she, her, and the book of poems is called Paradise. For the Sarah Lawrence Library, I'm Tim Kale, and this is the Sarah Lawrence Library Podcast. For today's episode, we're joined by poet Victoria Riddell. Before we go any further, I encourage you to give the podcast a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. These reviews are essential in us climbing the podcast ranks and finding our audience. We have a great review from a parent of a new SLC student, and everyone at the library just loved it. So more of that would be great. Thank you very much. You can connect with us on social media at SLC Library on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Also, remember to visit the library website, where you can check your library account, reserve a study room, or book a consultation with one of our research librarians at sarahlawrence.edu slash library. You can now also reserve time with our sewing machine, our 3D printer, or for podcasting by clicking the Sewing 3D Podcast button in the sidebar on the library's main page. The Sarah Lawrence Student Life Preservation Project is accepting contributions. Visit slcstudentlifeproject.omeka.net for more information. That URL will be in the show notes. If you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions that you'd rather not share over social media, email me at fkale at sarahlawrence.edu. Thank you for joining us on this auditory adventure. We hope this episode finds you well and that you share it with all of your friends and colleagues. Now let's begin. So this is a special library podcast episode because we're here not only to have a conversation about you uh, and your new book, Paradise, but to understand your book through the lens of this year's History Matters theme. So our future listeners are aware, the Sarah Lawrence's History Matters series, and I quote, explores how the past continues to live on in each of us, often working on us in mysterious ways. Molding our, molding our thoughts, sensibilities, actions, and our dreams. It's no coincidence that this describes much of your book. Uh, history is very much alive throughout your 53 poems that comprise paradise, and I could think of no better way to start uh, than to hear some of them. So if you would like to read some of your poems for us, we would be sure. very happy. Sure, I'll read a couple of the first poems. It's a poem called The Border. There was a gate and through the gate, another garden. Same grasses, clover, gentian, violet, and lily. And the dry grasses also made those willows sway. Just that rusty gate, and the dirt beneath scraped when it hinged open, then shut. And some claimed one side was paradise. Garden. In the first weeks, we already knew this was history, that you'd speak of our nakedness, the flat grasses we wove and slipped over each other. First there were frills of green leaf, stalks, tips too. Later came wild onion, the sharp tang of shoot and bulb, then peaches, standing together in sunlight, of course praise and song. We hardly cared that you would get so much of it wrong, that you would always speak of an apple or claim that one of us was so persuaded by the snake. Darlings, we imagined you over and over how you would break each other, wound the garden. Only then, still licking the dried peach juice sticky down our fingers, 
did we know shame? Here's one called Dominion. The animals had no love for us. We did not lie tenderly with the lion, and we had no peaceable gathering with the alligator and the wasp. Nor for a moment did the crow believe we had dominion. And if you heard that caw and had seen clouds massing from steady hooves, you would understand. There never was a fall. We stood. We ran. I'll jump to a place later in the book, to a poem called Snake. So this kind of moves all of that uh, iconography or uh, the notion of the garden a little bit forward. Snake. After at most a year, maybe two, showing off how it circled their necks and slid down and out the bottom of a t-shirt, how they fed mice on ice from an open palm, jaw unhinging to take it whole, my sons had no time for the snake when she'd go milky-eyed, slowing until her dry length coiled into days and days of such gray stillness, I'd knock the glass tank to make sure she was alive. Then, maybe I'd be making the bunk bed or folding baseball pants when the edging began, a restless roughing against bark chips, rubbing forward along every available friction until the split when she'd press out of herself, leaving the long, opaque shed. I loved it every time. I don't mean the emergence, though yes, there was that how she'd fold and stretch glossy and clear-eyed. No, I loved the papery scaled ghost I'd lift up, not to commemorate her chance to begin again, but the cold indifference to whom she'd been. And then I'll read one more and we sure. jump in. Yeah. Um, so moving along and moving along this idea of um, borders or, um, or gates, things like that. Um, here's a poem called Occupation. We're moving into another period of time entirely, so we're moving back again. My mother bled when the Germans entered Paris. She was nine. The red rust ran a wet track in her underpants like a skid mark from the soldier's motorcycle stationed at the corner of the Rue de Messine. How could she tell her parents? She was in love with the handsome soldier who squatted next to her to scratch Bijou's puppy ear. You're a fine young lady, he said, impressed with her German. She'd been hit right then, kicked in the belly by the dimpled smile he smiled at her. Better than the smiles of all her first loves, Buster Crabbe, Carrie, Gary, and Henri Garat. Wasn't this the truer cinema? He'd been commanded to kill her, but their love he couldn't, can't fire, and only wounds her, a bloody hurt no one else can see. She'd never tell. My mother washes out her cotton underpants and hides them in the armoire to dry, lies flat on the bed to quiet the blood. In the shuttered living room, her parents argue again. They could still get to Bordeaux. Maybe they'd been wrong turning back on the crowded road. Isn't the occupation safer? With Persian papers, they won't be forced to register. But my mother knows her soldier must know the truth. It's part of their beautiful tragedy to hold her bloody and bandaged in her arm as she confesses I'm a Jew. Natalie, darling, he'll say, I'll always protect you and nibble Bijou's ears. His smile, he'll carry her home. He'll show her parents there's no reason to hide. Uh, 
so Paradise is dedicated to Jonah and Gabe. Mm-hmm. Would you mind telling us who Jonah and Gabe are? Sure. They are the boys who appear in the snake poem. Uh, they're my sons. Um, they, you know, in choosing, I don't know how everyone chooses to dedicate books, but at the, with this book, um, it seemed pretty clear to me that they would be the people I would dedicate it to since it moves through so much um, at different places, uh, parts of our family's history from both sides of our family. And, um, and since it's their uh, legacy and it's their um, life to move forward with, I thought that they would be the people to have the book. That's beautiful. Paradise is an intimate and personal collection of memories and reflections, but it's also a complex political and historical journey. Could you walk us through how you shaped that journey, of balancing the broad and conceptual with the specific and tangible? Sure, I'll try. <laughs> um, so I didn't have any overarching idea of that at all when I started. Um, I would say that um, when I started to write the poems that um, are included in Paradise and the many poems that aren't included in Paradise that are you know, somewhere uh, on the floor in the computer. Um, I was, I had somewhat recently finished a novel that sort of, I thought, you know, kind of gutted everything I had to say at that time, and I kind of couldn't imagine what else I would want to write about. Um, And I was also coming out of a difficult time period where I thought, I'm not sure what I would want to do in a poem, um, or even what a poem was. And uh, I, went off to a writer's residency where I was fortunate enough to be for a while, and I mostly thought I was just gonna hike for a while. I thought I would just hike every day. And, um, uh, but what I decided to do once I got there was that I would just um, try to start something, try to start a draft of a poem every day. And the, the, the poem, The Garden, which was the second one I read, um, in which suddenly as I was working on this poem, I thought, whose voice are you writing in Victoria? And, you know, it became clear to me I was writing out of this wee voice um, from the Garden of Eden, and uh, which was never a place that I had really located myself too much before. And, um, well, that's always interesting when you get to a place that you are unexpected, that you haven't prepared to be in. Um, and so I thought, let me linger a bit there uh, and think about the garden and why I have any interest in arguing with the notions of the garden. And the more, the the next, probably one of the next poems was that first poem, The Gate, The Border. Um, And uh, and then as soon as I was thinking about uh, that that last line in it, um, in which I say, and and they argue one side was paradise, it beca- you know, we are living in a time with, uh, I, I, I don't, I had the number of millions of uh, displaced people in my head at one point, but I don't know it because it keeps growing astronomically. Um, and so there are so many people for whom no longer one side is paradise or whom paradise is used against them or that idea of the gate. And so then it be- I began to just try to write into it. Um, and. Uh, again, that for myself, um, it comes up in, in one of the other poems in the book where uh, I, I realized that I was, myself and my sons, were the f- 
first two generations that had successively been born in the same country, um, that both my parents and their parents had always been moving, always fleeing from one country to the next because of war, um, or the challenges of war, or the challenges of um, the dangers uh, of, of who and what they were, in particular as Jews. Um, and so I began to uh, write into that some more again. And then as that kind of constellation grew, I also be so I began to think of migrations, right? Mm -hmm. and, and contemporary migrations and the family history of migrations, um, you know, again, Eden. Um, and then also uh, I began to think of migrations of the body, um, what it means to get older, what it means to have a, uh, a body changing, uh, what it means to um, be in, in, in sync and also displaced from, one's, from one passage in your life to the next. You mentioned, you, I loved your description of writing that novel being kind of gutting. Um, was, are, are all of your projects like that? Is there a, a giving of oneself totally to the point where you feel gutted? Uh, or do certain projects do that more than others? Um, yes and yes okay. <laughs> <laughs> is the simplest answer. Um, uh, in that particular novel, um, uh, I had, without spending a lot of time on it, I had, um, uh, had a, a best friend from when I was seven years old, and um, at the age of 53, she died, having spent a bunch of time um, dealing with illness. And um, we were friends who had been in continuous friendship. And first, and she'd always bugged me, you know, why don't you write a book about us? We're the greatest, you know. Um, and uh, I kept saying to her, we don't have a problem. You know, you, like a novel needs a problem. Well then, you know, she went and got sick and then she went and died and that was certainly a problem. Mm -hmm. um, and first I thought I would write a memoir about a continuous friendship um, and what it was to have a continuous friendship. And, and then for a bunch of reasons, some of which were um, that in a memoir you're dealing with actual uh, real things. And I realized there was a bunch of stuff she didn't want me to talk about. She wouldn't have wanted me to talk about. Um, and in the novel, you don't have to. Uh, and in the novel, many things changed. So um, what that book began to become about wasn't about our friendship, but um, what is it in a community, uh, whether the narrow, co the smaller community of an intense group of friends or the larger community of family and the broad community you live in, when one person makes a choice. Um, and that happens all the time, right? The reverberations of choices that people make and how they spill out into communities. And in this case, inside of that novel, it's, it's the character's choice to stop treatment. So writing that, and that book is written in 18 points of view. So I, I, I had to go through a lot of different people's feelings in the side of my characters. And um, so that was kind of gutting. But yes, every book sort of gathers every, every resource every piece of whatever I can conjure of my heart and imagination um, for at that moment. So afterwards, you know, the field feels kind of fallow. Mm -hmm. There's a really nice sonic and conceptual uh, play between words, lines, stanzas, and even entire poems in a collection. Uh, for example, Garden uh, on page four and only then, and I loved you read this, still licking dried peach juice, uh, sticky down our fingers, did we know shame. 
Then in Origin, on page 8, he writes, but you're alive and who remains to assess your choice or bribe? Still that sticky shame. Mm -hmm. So the words sticky and shame recur and they're playing with each other. How do you know when to employ such a subtle device? Um, Do these devices happen organically as you're writing? Or after a poem, do you do a kind of autopsy to see what needs to go into it? Yes and yes. Um, <laughs> that's going to be my answer all the time. Um, I think some of it happens really organically. I think in, in that particular case, it happened entirely organically. Wow. And, um, and then I think also uh, the other side of it is probably not that I'm going to put it in in other poems, but that I have to extricate it from poems. Um, I think the case is more likely that as, as you're writing a group of poems, uh, and, and you wind up following what are, I guess, we would call thematic pathways, right? right? Trope, you know, paths. Um, you start to uncover um, whatever it is you're get, trying to get at um, that you didn't really know you were getting at. And so, in some sense, I kept landing on similar words. And so, uh, you can't have it happen all the time, right? Mm-hmm. You can happen, have it happen twice, but um, if every poem, you know, had shame in it, uh, it would become it would become like a tick, mm-hmm. uh, and it would lose its resonance. So sometimes you're pulling it back, and you're and you have to realize, oh, I've done this, I've done that. Um, what else am I doing? You know, and, and sometimes it is. Sometimes it's a leap into the unexpected, and sometimes it's a fallback into a place that. Um, has now become a convenient place, mm-hmm. right? So then you got to push forward or further or deeper mm-hmm. into something that, um, you know, once shame doesn't scare you, what else can scare you, you mm-hmm. know, inside the poem or what else can feel like a revelation? This, there's a historical consciousness in this work. Uh, how does a historical consciousness help a poet? My first reaction is, how can you write poems without a historical consciousness? Um, Even poets whose work um, feel utterly rooted in the moment, that's that's historical, right? You know, read later, that's historical. Um, uh, And... uh, And even poets whose work feels entirely lyric or... or, or, um, Again, they're, they're products of a moment in time, right? They live in time even as you reach to kind of live out of time. Um, and, in, and in this book, um, one of, I don't know if I would call it a pleasure, but one of the tasks of the book began to be to see um, the repetitions of history. Uh, and and uh, the repetitions of, you know, the the repetitions of people excluded, and the repetitions of borders, and the repetition of who gets entry and who doesn't get entry. Um, so there's one poem in the book, um, which isn't maybe one of the kind of odder poems in the book. I mean, there's some funny poems, right, in the book mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> Just saying. Um, but there's the poem We Petition You, Sirs, which is a poem that is all in fragments with lots of ellipses. Um, and in that poem, that started because um, another thing that was happening while this book was, I was writing this book, was that my father was dying and then, and um, 
and then passed away. And so among um, my dad's papers, I found a series of letters written over a 20-year time period, first starting in uh, 1946 and then continuing until um, 19, the 1960s, in which both he and my great uncle um, were writing to the uh, certain offices in the United States government, offices in the Polish government. The first ones were coming um, uh, from my uncle when he was uh, stateless in, in Spain after the Second World War. And then my, f and my father was here. He had come here through some extraordinary circumstances, but uh, by then was, uh, had just gotten out of the army, came across from Europe and wound up being made a citizen while he was in the army. And they were first trying to find where their family was, who was alive, who was dead, and um, with no answers. And then uh, eventually they were trying to um, reclaim uh, the homes and, and possessions of their family. So I began to pull from, the, from those series of letters, phrases, and, and began to work them through a poem that's not about my family, but um, hopefully begins to move. Uh, it was actually a poem that I had the great pleasure of having commissioned. I've never had a poem commissioned, but it was commissioned um, for a project in England, um, <clears throat> which was to have uh, a writers from all over the world take certain articles from the UN Declaration of, um, oh, I just lost the word, um, Declaration of Human Rights. Um, and so I chose certain articles and was writing into that with, and so it becomes about displaced people, it becomes about the, you know, one of the things is your right to property and your right to statehood. And then also it sort of moves into certain climate things inside that poem, which is certainly a leap from, you know, what my father's letter was about. So that's moving history into history mm -hmm. or into the present. I would love to know who are some of your mentors. I have lots. <laughs> <laughs> Some of my earliest mentors were not people I necessarily studied with. Um, when I was coming up as a writer, um, I loved uh, and I loved the work of Adrienne Rich. I've always loved the work of Adrienne Rich. Um, so she was an early mentor of mine. I had the great good fortune uh, when I first got out of college of um, kind of moving my way into working with her for a while. Um, so I lived in the same town as she lived in Montague, Massachusetts, and I had the great fortune of working for Adrienne and Michelle Cliff, um, who was her partner and who's also a wonderful writer, brilliant, brilliant uh, uh, short story writer and novelist, um, or was. So um, Adrienne uh, was a great mentor to me, Grace Paley of Sarah Lawrence. Um, uh, Grace, uh, I met when I was when I lived and went to college in New Hampshire. And Grace lived um, was teaching here still and was in Thetford, Vermont. And um, so we met doing political work. Um, and I Grace was a mentor in this. I loved and love Grace's work. And um, my mantra for myself for a while used to be, well, if Grace can do that, I can try to do that. So. Um, Grace was a poet, and she began to, and she wrote short stories. So um, when I uh, started to think of writing stories, and 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 I felt around me at that time, sort of moving between genres was, was not considered a very cool thing to do at the time. And the poets would look at me and go like, 
are you a short story writer now? And so I'd think to myself, well, Grace Paley can do it. Um, <laughs> and Grace, um, Grace had a family, and I wanted to have children, and so I think Grace, and Grace was political, so yeah. So you encountered pressure to be one thing. Initially, as a poet, I felt like um, that was, you carved your place as a poet, and, um, and when I began to write stories, really writers would, poets would say to me, so you're a fiction writer now? Mm -hmm. And I'd say, I'm writing stories, <laughs> but I'm a poet. Mm -hmm. um, right. um, so which poems required the most amount of work and revision and why? Uh, would you read them for us? <laughs> <laughs> um, sure. Uh, some poems, some poems were, were, were gifts, you know, they happened pretty quickly. Um, and some poems, you know, sometimes it's struggling with the form, uh, and sometimes it was struggling to get past some easier thing that I had done. So this poem that I think of is sort of a little bit funny, um, this poem, Expulsion, uh, which to look at it on the page uh, looks like a, a prose poem. So it's written in a block, it, it's not lineated. And at different points along the way it was lineated and at different points it was, you know, I was trying to make it a sonnet, See, you know, I messed around with it a whole lot. Um, well, for those who don't know, what yeah. is a prose poem? Visually, a prose poem uh, doesn't make use of the line, the line break, which is one of the great gifts of poetry, is to have a line break and so that you can enjam the line, you can get meaning on every line, you can have breath, and the prose poem write, looks like prose on the page. Um, and, well, discussion of the prose poem is a complicated thing, probably, um, but uh, it, it, it kind of does some of the things that writers of, of flash fiction would say, that the prose poem and flash fiction sort of bear some connections. Okay. Expulsion. Down to help out with the cooking, the shopping, driving to the dialysis clinic, paying the unpaid bills, managing the ever-growing array of unmanaged situations. So mornings and evenings, I also took out my father's dog, Teddy, an apricot poodle who, at the first sight of another dog, any dog, every damn walk, let's say for this evening's purpose, the bull mastiff walked by a small bent-over gentleman who was once, like my father, clearly a taller man, the spine in its seemingly inevitable compression. My father's poodle, at the sight of this bull mastiff, bark, yapped, leapt, bit at the air, bit at his leash, but I kept walking so the dog with its snapping and twisting antics was half dragged, half aloft, and the gentleman asked with his elegant Spanish, maybe Venezuelan, maybe Cuban or Salvadoran accent, how's he doing? by which it was clear he meant my father, not the poodle. I said, fine, thank you, yanking the dog now airborne like a cartoon version of a frustrated, furious dog. dog. And the gentleman said, your father and me, all us refugees, same story. While he bent his already bent over body slowly, slowly to the ground to scoop up his mastiff's monumental shit, and then even slower with the dog waiting patiently beside him, the gentleman managed, actually leaning on the dog for balance, to gather himself upright, 
and holding the bag, he turned, dropped it in the mesh basket, and said, not for babies, this business. <laughs> so that's one that took a while. Um, uh, this is one that took a while, too. Um, and it takes a totally different turn. This is a poem called Mount Lafayette Elegy. And then I'll read a really short one that took a while. Um, people know where Mount Lafayette, just not a prose poem, but Mount Lafayette is in New Hampshire. It's uh, part of the presidential range. So it's called Mount Lafayette, 1982. Not New Hampshire on that clear day, not the summit ridge, not the sudden cold drop, the squall, the dark, fast cloud, but just one lightning crack. For three hours, her husband pushed and pushed and pushed her chest, not that she was 24. I called her goat, a childish nickname. She pressed her palms against my skull, claimed to make the world small. Whatever we postured, we were still mostly child, younger than my youngest son. Yes, sons. That's part of how this story shifts. Sometimes it takes so long to tell a story, and when you do, it's altered in the telling. It isn't mine to tell her husband's story or her father's drive through the night before her mother would hear the morning broadcast. I was her friend, not the only one. That summer, I slept in a tent at the edge of a field and woke each day raw and feral. By that February, my mother was dead. By stroke, by tumor, by lung, by car, by vein, by starvation, by miscarriage, by heart, by pill, by mind, in the flower of alpine meadows, in the hour of derelict streets, in the aftermath of ICUs, my grief has never had to scavenge far. I have waited in fields for lightning that would also take me. And sometimes the world was too small. I have met other beasts. They stalk, they curl close, a purr, a thrum. You have yours, and you, and you, and you. I could not save my sons their grief, could not choose what creature travels beside them, nor recognize its shape. Goat, I'm old enough to be your mother, older than my mother. Your mother's dead, and last year both our fathers. I've kept each secret you told me. So in that one, um, some of it was exactly what winds up getting enacted in the poem. You know, in the first drafts of that poem, I started telling everyone's business. You know, the fathers, the mothers, the, the husbands, um, and, uh, and really claiming my place. Um, and then, uh, and the poem kept just feeling false and flat. And finally, I realized it wasn't my business. You know, that it wasn't, I, and so the very act of realizing it was what happens inside the poem. You know, this isn't my story. It's not mine to tell their story. It's not mine to tell that. Um, and then the interruptions that suddenly in there, like the, that my sons came into that poem seemed at first like a wrongness until I sort of thought, okay, they belong in here. And, and then it's a little bit in a poem figuring it figuring out the layering um, of what it can be or wants to be. Um, this one, which in, in its first draft kind of came close to this, but uh, not really, and then it took a while to find, is a poem called Refugees. Um, <clears throat> and sometimes the, the difficulty is not in the overall um, structure of the poem, 
but in in um, in cleaning it out, you know, the 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 uh, sometimes it's at it's in it's in digging farther and messing it up to find what it is, but sometimes it's in subtracting, mm. you know, getting rid of big chunks of a poem. In the last days when he could barely open his eyes, he'd look up from the hospital bed, lift his hand and say, that's me. And we said, yes, Papa, you're right here. No, he said, jabbing his fingers towards the television, clusters of makeshift tents bent under gusting winds, a child held over the rail of a listing boat. Or he pointed at lines of young men, squatting men, men slouched against the stone walls, sweatshirts tied around waists, a few smoking cigarettes. No, he said, waving towards men browner and blacker than he. You think that's not me, he said. You look again. So when it comes to revision and uh, revising a poem, are you ever finished with a poem? Uh, is there ever that moment where you finally feel at ease with it? That goes in stages. I mean, I think there's often a point in a first draft where I'm like, yeah, great, <laughs> done, bingo, bongo, it's, it's finished, yeah. you know? I got this one, on to the next. And then uh, the next morning I look at it and I think, well, that's pathetic. <laughs> um, and then, and then, uh, and then you have to sort of see if any of it endures in, in, in seeming like a, sometimes a line is all that lasts from a first draft of a poem. Um, and then I move from there. But uh, no, I, I think if, if I, um, usually after books come out and I give readings, I sort of am using the same book each time. And Oftentimes, I've you know scratched out words. I'm like, what's the, why did I use that word? That's a horrible word. You know, it's often I I think there's too much. You know, I'm eliminating. Um, uh, I saw a great uh, image um, that someone had taken and posted on Instagram uh, by the uh, fiction writer um, Charles Baxter, Charlie Baxter, a w w remarkable fiction writer, and everyone should go read Charles Baxter's work. Um, and he was reading an older story of his, you know, from maybe 15 or 20 years ago, and they showed um, that Charlie had gone through the story ahead of time and completely cut out paragraphs, revised it, that he was reading a much revised story 20 years later. So the easy answer is, you know, well, finally you get weary and you say it's got to go into the book. Um, and then even still, there's times in the first pass and the second pass of, a, um, of reading your proofs that you're, you can make changes, much usually to increasingly an editor's chagrin. But, you know, 15, 20 years later, you'll still see things that you want to change. Okay. Uh, so what are you usually doing when you're not writing? Uh, do you have a hobby or a practice of some kind that puts you in the right mood for creation? Sure, <laughs> lots of them. Um, I try to spend as much time as I can um, outdoors, and increasingly I try to go to the f most wildernessy places that I can find, so I like to spend a lot of time hiking. Um, uh, I've just been um, imagining my way into thinking of hiking this these trails in Patagonia. <laughs> so that's, I've not done it yet, but um, I've been thinking about it, partly because my son has just come home from 
hiking in Patagonia. So now I'm just envious, right? Um, uh, so I hike. I um, I have a couple of different physical practices. I uh, do yoga and I work out and I lift weights and. Um, and uh, late in my life, I have started to learn to ride horses. It, I was not a person brought up around horses or a person who rode horses, um, but I've had the chance to spend some time out west, and I thought, well, I'm gonna learn about these big, beautiful animals. Um, and so I'm, it's also good to try to learn something brand new, you know, um, it seems to me, increasingly. So uh, riding horses is something new. Um, and I've been trying that. Great, thank you for sharing. I, there's a lot of, of physicality in all of that, which is like the opposite of what a writer is actually doing, uh, just sitting there typing away, so. Exactly, Yeah. exactly, <laughs> right? I mean, you sit at a desk, you sit at a desk, mm -hmm. and, then, um, and then you gotta get up and go. Mm -hmm. uh, and oftentimes, you know, it happened, you know, just even today, I was trying to do something today at the desk because I had some time. Um, before I was coming here and I had been trying to work on something in a scene and I thought, oh, that's great, that's great. And, I, and then I walked across the campus to get something and on my way, right, leaving the desk, I thought, oh no, I took it the wrong way, I gotta do that. And so, you know, kind of hurried back to my office to see if my thought, you know, as I walked across uh, to Westlands was as great and brilliant a thought as I thought it had been on the way. It was less brilliant, but it still worked a little bit. So just moving, getting yeah. when you're stuck, just getting up and moving helps. That's great advice. Uh, what surprised you in writing this book? One of the things that surprised me is something that shouldn't surprise me because I think I say it all the time to students, which is I was surprised that returning to certain subject matter, um, there was still more and more for me to explore in it, more and more for me to mine. And um, frequently, uh, you know, I say that to students all the time, oh, so, okay, so that came up in one story, you think you can never enter that turf again? Of course you can. Um, and there I was back in um, certain worlds that I, I thought I had completed um, thinking about. Uh, so that's one surprise. Um, and also, you know, when I when I said what the path of the book was, that in itself was a surprise for me. Um, not all, the whole book was that it would kind of come together and make sense um, together, and that I that these engagements and these ways of looking at both history and the present and the body and um, and certain stories. Um, uh, and myths were were going to all kind of open themselves to each other, that there was going to be a conversation inside the book. Okay. Uh, so this is my last question. Um, some of the people here or listening may be creatively blocked mm -hmm. uh, or, or even insecure about their work. Mm -hmm. What's your message to those writers who are struggling? How do we fight against a negative inner monologue? I know this sounds really easy, but giving yourself permission really every day you know i i've um i've said this to my students who some of whom are so generously here um that it, when we 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 come to the we come to our writing because there's something that's urgent in us we come to our writing because there's something 
that, that feels as if it needs to be said, even if we don't know what it is. And then we get to the desk and it all just panics in us, like, oh, I won't seem smart and I won't seem cool and I won't seem this and I won't be that or I will be too this or I will be too that. And so you can't, you won't write anything if you're terrified of that. And it's as if I sometimes have visualized it um, in myself as if all those voices have like jumped up onto my shoulders and crowded onto me like a bunch of mean, nasty voices. And so sometimes it means that in order to give yourself permission, you gotta literally wipe off all those things. And in order to take them off your shoulder, you have to sometimes name what they are, you know? And so I can't say this because my mother wouldn't like it if I said that. I can't say this because my lover wouldn't like it if I said that. I can't say that because it might offend this person or that person or this person. It, 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 it's just a piece of paper, right? You can make it go away, um, but you can't, you can't invite it unless you invite it. Um, so sometimes just naming what the, the sensors are that keep you, and sometimes the biggest sensor is yourself, right? I'm not smart enough to say this. So for a long time, um, I think before really, I mean, it's a long time before this idea of you have permission became a very popular one, um, and it's, I guess, popular for a reason. I literally wrote that and had that on my desk, and um, I also made a list of what that meant to have permission. So. That meant um, I had permission to write badly. I had a permission to write brilliantly. I had permission to write better than whomever I thought was the best writer I could imagine. Um, I had permission um, to say certain things that I was scared of saying. Um, and and I, I often, if I felt blocked, would make myself do that. Instead of saying what I was so scared about, I would just give myself my, re my permission. Right, that's a great answer. Um, it's been a pleasure talking with you. you I love your book. Thank you. Thus concludes this episode of the Sarah Lawrence Library Podcast. I just want to take a moment here to just once again say thank you to Victoria Riddell for sharing your mind with us, for sharing your poetry with us. It was a real pleasure, and it made for an excellent event, and it made for an excellent podcast. So thank you once again. If you'd like more from the SLC Library Podcast, then go back and listen to one of my other chats with staff or students to tide you over until next week's episode. There'll be new episodes every Friday for the remainder of the semester. Remember to give us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcast. Follow us on social media at SLC Library on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And visit the library website where you can check your library account, reserve a study room, or book a consultation with one of our research librarians at sarahlawrence.edu slash library. We now also have a sewing machine, a 3D printer, and podcast sessions open to you. Just go to the library's main page and find the button in the sidebar that says Sewing 3D Podcast. It'll take you to a calendar where you can reserve time if you need it. We've already had some people partake of both the sewing machine 
and the 3D printer, and it just it's it's great to see students engaging with this uh, technology in exciting ways, and we just hope to do more of that. So go ahead and go to the library's uh, main website, sarahlawrence.edu slash library, and find that button in the sidebar and click on it and reserve your time. If you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions, feel free to email me at any time at fkale at sarahlawrence.edu. Music by Owen Anderson. Thank you for sharing your time with us, one and all. We look forward to doing it again next week. Music